0: take a network break hey a fair warning i'm starting to see ads for pumpkin spice flavored things but i promise here in the network break there are no virtual donuts pumpkin spice variety we we keep
1: it real <laughs> if you want cinnamon don't call it pumpkin spice <laughs> honestly <laughs> cinnamon's fine we have cinnamon but cinnamon's fine <laughs> cinnamon's spice. a fine spice standing upstanding you know member of the community absolutely that's fine yes you know but yes. let's not let's legacy not. spices
0: that we love and adore
1: that's right. Don't call it pumpkin. Don't call Because it it's pumpkin. not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's cinnamon. We got
0: some news. We got some FUs. We also have some sponsors. Let's start there. We're sponsored this week by VMware. It's VMworld. It's taking place September 29th, October 1st. As a live virtual event, you can register now. There's keynotes, deep dive, technical sessions, and more. That's at vmworld.com. We're also sponsored today by TeamViewer. In the age of remote work, how can distributed workforces keep their IT systems running smoothly while ensuring stability and security? TeamViewer Remote Management lets organizations of all sizes monitor business critical aspects of their IT, centralize important device information without relying on end user input, detect and patch software vulnerabilities, and protect devices against external threats and human error. You can learn more about TeamViewer Remote Management at TeamViewer.com slash networkbreak. That's teamviewer.com slash networkbreak. Last but not least, stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with SD WAN, with the Silver Peak customer Quantum Clean. We talk about how the company reduced downtime and boosted the performance of its global WAN. All right, let's kick things off uh, with some FU. That's follow-up. And if you want to comment, critique, uh, correct us, you can go to packetpushers.net slash FU. First follow-up is we talk a lot about SD-WAN. A listener, Dan, wrote in to say, for all the hype of SDUN over different internet leaks, this pandemic has really shown that our monopoly-owned last-mile infrastructure is in worse shape than even cynical me had thought. Uh, he reports that in the Bay Area, his LTE and cable internet performance has cratered from 100 megabits down to 3 megabits on LTE and from 200 megabits down to 1.3 megabits down on cable. He writes, simply put, there are few incentives for these monopolies to improve their last-mile infrastructure.
1: And he's pretty much right. I actually suspect that people's experience of the internet per se is highly variable according to where you live mm-hmm. and um you know at the end of the day, building cable into the ground, you know trenching up the roads or getting access to right of ways in the on the poles is an is an extraordinarily difficult and complex issue, and some countries have done it one way, so for example, in most of europe um and in places in, in like Australia, where I was, there is a company that owns the actual cable in the ground. And it's kind of like a semi government for profit type of thing. And they sell access to the cable to companies who work for profit. Mm-hmm. So every house has the cable, but the people who provide the internet access rent that cable from other companies. And in those markets, because I've worked in them as well as the US, um, they have a much better sort of approach. So th- because the cable's there for everybody. Now that's. There is some variety in there, and I'm making some very broad statements, but the EU approach to internet is that it's a universal service and it should be as consistent as possible um, to everybody, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, not, it's not meant to be a competitive situation. And I think what we're seeing in the US telco market is that in the name of competitiveness and in the name of capitalism, you know, you've got to have competitive. One way to be competitive is to just stop investing in your infrastructure, take all the money out and let the infrastructure rot. And when when it dies off, then you just walk away laughing with the cash. So somewhere in between there, like, you know, some sort of socialist utopian view of, you know, (laughs) consistent common access that everybody can have, you know, but it's probably, it's not competitive, so it may not be efficient, it becomes a bureaucracy. And over here on the other side, an extreme capitalist view, which is, oh, we ran the cable in 20 years ago, we've still got 10 years of, we think we can extract more money out of this for no effort for another 10 years. What you want is something in the middle where telcos are investing in your infrastructure, maintaining the cable, the boxes at your end of the street are getting maintenance and replacement, the DS slams are being overhauled and updated, mm-hmm. the backbone's being invested in. And I think um, particularly in some parts of the US, the competition has actually degraded. The FTC, with its handoff, keep in mind these companies are effective monopolies. They've got a right to operate the cable for five to ten years. And while they may have nominal incentives to do the right thing, they may not actually have them in real life. So he, you may be right. And and the the answer here, of course, is... In a capitalist society where you have a telco who's giving you bad service, sell your house and move somewhere where you've got some good (laughs) ones. That's a capitalist market. (laughs) If that's
0: your choice, you have to sell to get to a better broadband com- competition. That's a, a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to argue with a state uh, last mile competition in the U.S. stinks. Mm. We reported uh, recently, maybe not that recently, but about you know Google trying to build out uh, a wireless service to compete for that last mile business and being blocked by AT and T. You know, running into red tape and trying to uh, because AT and T wouldn't give them access to their telephone poles, like that kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not good for competition, and, and frankly, it's not capitalist by having you know one or two companies own that last mile infrastructure and then do whatever they want with it. So, yeah, it stinks for us. I remember my family took mm. a vacation to Europe recently, at, well, before the pandemic anyway. And we saw an mm. ad on a truck for like uh, 50 megabits per second for 10 euros a month. And my son looked at me and he's like, how much is 10 euros? And I'm like, it's about 15 bucks. And he's like, what?
1: <laughs> 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 what? How do they do that? I'm like, oh, son. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is an interesting situation in that sense. So that, um, you know, here in the UK, I pay £20 a month or roughly 30 maybe $35 a month for unlimited data, unlimited calls. And I mean unlimited. I mean stream Netflix 24 hours a day, unlimited if that's your, that floats your boat. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas I know that in the US, $100 a month would get you four or five gigs of data sort of thing. So, you know, I think there's a room. And I don't want to be, I want to be balanced about these sorts of statements. I believe generally that anybody who builds the infrastructure, because you can't just go and buy your service from somebody else, there's value in shared infrastructure, but the companies that make profits or deliver services shouldn't be able to lock up the infrastructure and exclude competition, which is what, you know, charter communications in the US, because it's fundamentally broke. It's been bought out by private equity a number of times, and each time it's been loaded up with more debt, it has no capability to go in and, you know, maintain its infrastructure, and it's basically abandoned a whole swathes of its DSL. You know, the copper plant that it received is now... You know analysts are very concerned in saying that something like thirty percent or forty percent of America may just be in a bandwidth desert They just and it's nowhere way it can be fixed without a massive you know tens of billions of dollars of government investment to overhaul that network yeah. now that would equally apply to any other country by the way, right so it's not specific to the u s but the the complaining noises I'm hearing do nearly all come from the u s a
0: yeah, yeah, and for good mm-hmm.
1: reason. All
0: right. Well, thank you for the follow-up. Let's, we've got one more. Uh, speaking of SD-WAN, we, Greg, you and I had remarked in a previous episode about Meraki not being quite uh, as fully robust an SD-WAN solution as competitors. A listener took issue writing, you may need to dig a little deeper on Meraki SD-WAN. It does do application-specific rules and preferences. The biggest limitation is the two WAN links only, end quote. Uh, yeah. So maybe it could be that we need to revisit Meraki and see how it's grown.
1: Yeah. Well, two WAN links is a pretty big limitation. Um, So not very robust, quite limited um, in my defense. And also I've spoken to people like the application recognition engine is fairly low key. It can do some fairly simple stuff with, you know, headers and rules. And it doesn't, whereas the Viptela code that's now been ported to the ASR routers is much more granular and much more flexible in terms of what it can do and the rules that you can bring around it. And there's also some advances in terms of, how you can build your mesh and how you can scale out. My understanding is the Meraki SD-WAN is good for a couple of hundred sites, but I'm not sure that I've heard of people doing 4,000 sites or something like that. So I, my understanding is the Cisco Viptela SD-WAN scales up to a lot higher and has a lot more flexibility. So, you know, yes, I, I agree. The, the Meraki SD-WAN solution, by the way, from what I hear is – suitable for probably 70% of networks out there. There's no reason to go and buy big on the Viptela SD-WAN. If you've got a 50-node branch network, your Meraki is probably going to be just fine um, unless you've got some specific needs. And in which case, my advice to you is use Viptela for that, just those pieces where there's specific needs, and run two SD-WANs. Don't try and run one. Reduce your pain. (laughs) Yeah, the Viptela code has a bit of a bad reputation, um, the transition from where it was when it was acquired to where it is now has been pretty bumpy, I've heard. And uh, so maybe you might want to hold off a little bit longer while Cisco um, gets that product uh, you know, finished and buffed up and ready for general, general release. Not to mention that you have approximately 10,000
0: other choices in SD-WAN, so uh, you mm. don't have to limit yourself to Cisco either.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I well, I'm, what I'm saying is, that I think people say Meraki is very useful and how great it is. To, so yes, I recognise that. But they always say, oh, but there's things it can't do. There's yeah. so many limitations. I can only have VLANs this way. I can't do, you know, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. So yeah, it's not so much about the SD-WAN functions of Meraki. It's also to talk about the, you know, the number of SSIDs you might get in a branch or the capabilities you can do with the wireless or what you can do with the Ethernet switch ports in a Meraki and and so on. Sure,
0: and that's frankly also Meraki's business model. It was designed to be easy to set up, easy to deploy, easy to operate, which means fewer nerd knobs, and that you know that's their business model.
1: Also, less for customers to do wrong, so less for customers to fail. That's way to look at it. Yes. Yeah. Don't fiddle with the nerd knobs. Just get in, get the solution down. Basic networking is all. Also... No, I'm a big fan of Meraki, by the way. Um, it, you know, it's a simple product. The pricing's a little bit out of whack for what you get. I think, you know, having the Cisco brand name behind it is a bit like buying, you know, a Ralph Lauren shirt. Is there any difference between a Ralph Lauren polo and the one you buy from, you know? (laughs) Yeah, some. How much, you know, is it worth, you know, paying 20 times for? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, individual decision.
2: Well,
0: Fashion, thanks, everyone, baby. for the feedback. Uh, if you have questions, comments, corrections, we're, we love to get them. You can find that at packetpushers.net slash FU, and the FU is for follow-up. All right, let's do some actual news. First, Cisco is acquiring privately held Babel Labs for its noise filtering technology. According to Cisco, Babbel Labs can filter out background noise on conference and video calls in real time, so things like a dog barking or lawnmowers or um, you know, leaf blowers going off in the background.
1: Yeah, this is a, a market category we've seen um, a rather a lot of lately. I don't know if you've been noticing there's a number of startups in this space and we've been told to, you know, listen out for these and they've um, some of them have wanted to advertise on the podcast, actually. And we've kind of gone, what? <laughs> Which is interesting. Um, we have, you know, more or less attempted to ignore most of this because I've looked at these products and, indeed, I've trialled them out because a lot of them... Once you've got a, a piece of software that does audio processing, and you've developed some algorithms that are good at audio processing and reducing noise and reducing echo and bad room noise and all that sort of stuff, you can equally apply it to a video conferencing as you can to podcast production as you can to voice calls. If you like, you know, you could be using it on a Zoom call. You could be just as well using it on a Skype call, or you know, or a voice service, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so these products always looked like a feature, not a product to me. Mm-hmm. And I always just thought it's only a matter of time until they get bought by Zoom or Webex or Skype, really. Right. And this Cisco's moving early here. Um, I spoke to Cisco. I had a casual chat with some people from Cisco, and they basically said that the real acquisition behind this was not only the software, and which will be useful for them, obviously to enfold into Webex and, and some of the other products inside of Cisco. I imagine you'll see it come out in their unified comms as well. Um, But what they really wanted was the company. Apparently it has 32 employees, 20 have PhDs, Mm. software architecture. Uh, We talked before uh, about Cisco's.
0: Yeah, yeah. and and Babel Labs makes a big deal on its website about uh, building neural nets uh, to do its analysis of uh, audio. So I'm sure that raised Cisco's antenna.
1: Yeah, I think there's, you know, like all acquisitions, it's not normally just one thing. I think getting a hold of thirty-two people with artificial intelligence expertise, of which twenty of them have got PhDs in AI. Uh-huh. Now, those people alone earn, in the market, the the, the sort of the ask for buying a PhD with artificial intelligence experience of more than ten years. They earn salaries of between two and five million apiece, uh-huh. right? So, to get twenty of them in a single, single lump, <laughs> <laughs> is actually incredibly success. You know, is a good. They probably got basically got a. A golden handshake to sign on with cisco and they'll have be locked in you know have golden handcuffs for a while so i think it's much more about cisco trying to find a team of artificial intelligence experts that it can do other stuff with inside of the organization to bolster its software development efforts i don't think the audio thing's all that important although it's going to be useful they can bring it over to you know blah 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 but just because they're training neural nets to do audio processing doesn't mean they can't use neural nets to do threat intelligence as well sure. so this is an acquihire not you know not world changing Yeah, I
0: agree. It's not world-changing. Cisco says it's going to integrate Babbel Labs first into WebEx meetings, which makes sense, and then over time its entire collaboration uh, portfolio. Looking on the website, the company, Babel Labs, has other focus areas, including things like uh, improving voice interfaces on smart devices, voice-based authentication, searchability, sentiment analysis. So as you said, uh, even within the audio realm, there are other potential products or enhancements that Cisco can fold into other parts of its business using this technology, aside from scooping up a whole bunch of AI PhDs.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, you get, get a free product as well. You know, I got 20 PhDs, but I got, you know, artificial intelligence and neural net programming and I get, I get a product as well. That's kind of a bonus really not the babble part actually doesn't, doesn't significantly matter. Cisco's already got the audio processing features inside of its WebEx appliances, I'm not a huge fan of the Webex proprietary hardware. Why would people have got this weird fetish that having a separate web conferencing thing, it, it must be better or better, but just use your computer. You know,
0: right.
1: Get a decent microphone and and maybe spend a hundred bucks on a decent camera while we wait for the, you know, Dell and HPE to finally put a decent webcam inside their system and just get one. Right. And it's, why would you spend $5,000 on, on a Webex DX 80 when you could just get a microphone and and camera for a hundred bucks. Yep. Kind of baffled. Um, But, you know, people have fetishes about having a special box and how important it makes them feel. And, you know, I saw that during Cisco Live, they were using the WebEx DX80s to uh, make the presentations and the audio was consistently awful. And not necessarily because the DX was a problem, but because these people would put it on the other side of the room, right. and then it had this face detection software so that the camera would focus in on you. What they would then, well, they didn't realize that if you stand far enough away, the camera might focus in on your face and frame you, but then it's very grainy because the camera's a low resolution, cheap thing, and it's just trimming the image. And you get that. it's just it's not just don't do that. They don't work the way you think they work. So yeah,
0: right. And a good microphone goes a long way.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you think that having a video conferencing room is a really good idea, just remember that it was only five years ago when Cisco was doing, remember those mega room conferencing systems? Oh, yes. They spent $2.5 billion buying a company to get their super high def, and people were spending millions of dollars to convert an office block and put in custom wall colorings and desks and, Mm -hmm. you know, these wall, what were they like, you know, two meter wide video screens, so it was like a massive in-room experience and all that sort of stuff. How did that work out? that's a good custom hardware and telephones custom hardware and video conferencing has never worked in 20 years people don't want a handset on their desk they wanted a smartphone they only took a telephone on the desk because there was no smartphone mm-hmm. so stop doing custom hardware is my <laughs> pro tip don't do that <laughs> just because someone's selling it to you doesn't make it a good idea anyway,
0: whatever. all right uh one more cisco story um Apparently an ex-Cisco employee has pleaded guilty in a court in Northern California uh, regarding some malicious activity that he uh, destroyed some files and software in Cisco's AWS cloud after he had left the company.
1: Yeah, and in another article, it actually said the Google cloud. So the register says AWS cloud, threat post says Google cloud, so you can read the links yourself and make your own Distinction between the two, but apparently this person left the company, and six months later, five months later, he logged in and deleted four hundred and fifty-six virtual machines from the Cisco WebEx Teams cluster. Right. Um, oh, that's a pretty big security breach. You know, if somebody leaves the company, what's the thing that you do? Well, and well, yes. So this occurred in two thousand and eighteen. So obviously, it is twenty twenty. I'm sure that Cisco would claim that they have fixed this, but. I guess the thing that strikes me about this is this week I've had a lot of people banging on at me about, oh, you know, this this web conferencing product's not very good and it's unsafe and this web conferencing product and everybody's got their preferred web conferencing product. The answer is they're all unsafe. They're all untrustable. And remember, no vendor gives you a guarantee, nobody gives you a warranty, and they take no responsibility when it doesn't work. So just remember all of that.
0: That's right, uh yeah, just a reminder that even the security basics uh, like canceling uh, an ex employee's credentials can be hard <laughs> yeah. uh, so
1: they probably probably did a good job of canceling his email just forgot to take away his cloud account <laughs> right yes, don't forget the cloud when you don't go forget through those the credentials. Cloud. Like,
0: All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor today, uh, VMware's VMworld. You can register for it at vmworld.com. It's a live virtual event taking place starting September 29th, and you get a free registration. With that registration, you get access to the whole enchilada, keynotes, product presentations, technical deep dives, everything. Uh, Myself, I plan to be live tweeting the keynotes. I'll give you quick takes on VMware's product announcement and strategy, and also maybe some snarky comments on Pat Gelsinger's living room.
1: <laughs> Almost certainly. It's interesting having a back channel and taking the discussion there. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, we love VMworld. Uh We're going to be there. They tend to have pretty good content. So I uh, hope you can.
1: Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see. I've got a couple of sessions. There's one, which is um, doing NSX over ACI, which is a recognition of the fact that a lot of customers do have deployed ACI, but m- use NSX over the top of it. So they're talking about how that you can use the two of those together. That's one that's caught my eye. And there's another one about running active, active data centers using um, the NSX product. So they're the two that I've had my eye on, and um, the, I think the other thing about VMworld is the presentations are quite high quality. That is, the people who present, like you've seen at other vendors like Cisco Live as well, they, they vet the people who speak to, to be known good speakers and then they vet the content very strongly so that it presents the right image. So it's not like turning up to a conference where it's like vendor bought a position and the guy, you know, the, the speaker turns up and just delivers some sort of trash, right? This is actually you know, highly filtered, highly curated, worth attending. And it's in three time zones, by the way. So whether you're in Asia Pacific or in Europe or in the U.S., the, the sessions are actually being streamed in three time zones, so you don't actually have to stay up late at night or get up early in the morning to see them. All right. Yeah, you can register at vmworld.com, and it's open now.
0: Back to the news, the IETF had to reforecast its 2020 budget due to the pandemic. Uh, that reforecasting includes a decrease of almost 2.2.5 million in meeting revenue.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. It struck me this week that how is the IETF handling its the change here because it usually holds the meetings in person, and it struck me that the meetings are actually a major revenue source for them. So I wandered off to their website, and sure enough, they've been restating their budget. Uh, the the meetings are now not working, and that means that they've lost four million dollars worth of revenue um, because those meetings are no longer happening. And those conferences that they used to hold um, do subsidize the main operations of the IETF generally. So the meetings were actually being held, and the people coming along and eating hotel food and you know wandering in and out of conference rooms actually funded the operations of the IETF. Uh-huh. And just to give you a, sc- a size of that, the scope of that, the meeting revenue in 2019 was $4 million um, and they have another $5 million in non-meeting revenue for a range of things. In 2020, that revenue budget will now go to $1.3 million, and there'll be some increases in revenue to $5.4 million. So I just, the impact of COVID is actually very much deeper than most of you expect and the IETF, um, company, which is a US LLC. It's not an independent body. It's actually a tied to the US government uh, rules on a corporate company. So it had lodges tax returns and so forth in the US. And it is actually a company. It pays no dividends, doesn't do it for profit, like the IEEE does, for example. So the IEEE actually um, its groups actually make a profit, which that gets folded into the IEEE. Um, and there are other other standards bodies uh, like the TMF, which are for profit. So the TMF, for example, is owned as a shareholding and its standards activities are actually done for profit. So you've got to be a little bit careful about which standards bodies you like or are fond of because some of them are done uh, with the best interests of the community in mind and some of them are done by the people who own them in mind. A bit like uh, student, uh, you know, those companies who do the online testing. Who's who's the winner here? mm uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, links in the. So show there's notes. no real story. I just wanted to highlight that the IGF is being impacted by COVID in ways you might not think. Right, uh, and we do have a link to that um,
0: reforecast if you want to check it out for yourself. Mm. Uh, Facebook is warning advertisers that a forthcoming update to Apple's iOS software will make it harder to track users and serve up targeted ads using Facebook's Audience Network program. The Apple update is going to require apps to ask users for permission to collect and share their data um, using Apple's device identifier.
1: So a big change here, Apple's beginning to tighten up the iOS and restrict uh, what people can do on the platform. And in every phone, there was previously a unique identifier and the app could use that. And quite often there was a good reason to do that. If you're in a game and you were trying to track, or if you had an app and you were trying to track how many unique devices were running this app, you would get the unique identifier and then calculate how many different unique identifiers there were. However, um, just to show that no good de- good deed goes unpunished, a number of advertisers have been using the unique identifier to link you with other data to actually track you as you move around the internet and mm-hmm. to know a hell of a lot about you. And uh, in iOS 14, Apple is, you know, taking away that privilege because it's now realising that customers, particularly the customers of Apple, Apple has made a big deal about its privacy situation. Yep. And I think it's also hearing that uh It's customers loudly that privacy is a big deal for them. People want to buy Apple products and phones particularly because of this privacy thing. So they're going to, you know, sorry, Facebook, bit of bad luck. Well, you know, I'm actually curious
0: about this. I think it depends. For one, it's opt-in. It's not forbidding outright the use of it. So you have to ask a user for permission, but you can still do it if the user gives you permission. And it depends on how Apple, I think, words this opt-in message. If it's dry and technical, I think a large number of people will just click through because we've seen, Mm -hmm. in general, most users don't really care about privacy. They're willing to trade privacy for access or free or whatever. Um, Mm. However, Facebook is warning advertisers that this may be a problem for them. In fact, it's gone as far as to say, quote, Apple's update may render audience network so ineffective on iOS 14 that it may not make sense to offer it on iOS 14. We expect less impact to our own advertising business meaning mm. audience network is gonna stink but facebook will be fine.
1: so this is to do with um if you're an app on an ios phone that uses facebook advertising to push ads in front of people that that advertising will now be less effective and generate less revenue for the company that's doing the ads yes. generally they're pretty rubbish ads that do that sort of stuff like if you're taking ads from facebook they're pretty rubbish ads but here's the thing the whole point of this is that this lets Facebook pretend that it's not them doing the tracking because the data collection is done by a third party. Right. And then the data that the third party collects then sends it to Facebook. But Facebook can go up and stand up in front of Congress, which is the, currently the only body that, because um, it's a company it reports to the US government, um, and says, oh, but we didn't collect the data. Our partners did. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there's a fairly, a fairly solid game of sophistry going on here that sort of says, well, yeah. So, no, it's, and, and I mean, Apple, let's face it too, that Apple isn't entirely free of guilt here. It does also use this data itself to optimise its own app. So particularly things like Apple News, Apple Music, though, you know, Apple TV uses exactly the same principles to track what you're doing and to, in theory, to offer you a better service. Right. But, you know, I would say that, yeah, okay, it's all shades of grey. On, on the left-hand side at about 10% black is Apple, which is 90% white. But over here in the ninety percent dark is Facebook.
0: <laughs> so. I would agree, and I, I, yeah, not to. I'm not trying to ding Apple. I think it's great that they're making it opt in because users should get a choice on how much data is being tracked and shared. Uh, so, yeah, kudos to them.
1: Mm. I have no problem with that. Yeah, I think Apple's doing a bona fide attempt here to fix what is a fairly egregious brew. You know, yeah, use of their platform. Yeah. and people are literally just stealing as much data as possible, and Facebook uses it to target ads. Well, Facebook's getting all the benefit here. <laughs> What's the, You know, right. somebody else collected the data, but Facebook is still delivering ads that yes. other people did with creepy data. Yes. Yeah, I'm shedding no tears for Facebook on this one. No, none at all.
0: All right, one more quick break to tell you about today's other sponsor, TeamViewer. Don't let your IT vulnerabilities go unknown. With TeamViewer Remote Management, your IT department can stay one step ahead of infrastructure issues that includes centralized device monitoring, asset management, proactive patch management, network monitoring, and endpoint protection with Windows and macOS support, not to mention GDPR-compliant data backup and storage. Plus, you get visibility into important aspects of your IT, such as disk space, disk health, CPU and memory usage, system updates, firewalls event logs, and much more. TeamViewer is offering Network Break listeners a chance to try remote management free for 14 days. Head on over to teamviewer.com slash network break to get started with IT free of interruptions. Teamviewer.com slash network break. All right, some financial news before we wrap. First, HPE reported its Q3 financials revenues of $6.8 billion, down 6% from last year, but up 13% from the previous quarter and an operating profit of $12 million.
1: HP has had a mixed uh, couple of couple of years. Its uh, share price has been on a fairly general downward trend, and remember, of course, that it uh, sent away its uh, Micro Focus business, sold it off into a separate company, all of its legacy businesses around the legacy Unix and everything, and a lot of its actual financial value is still um, determined by the microfocus company because it still owns a lot of shares in that business, and can, will continue to do so. This, this um, particular set of financial results was quite hopeful in that HPE had, um, looks like it's finally turning the corner, generating um, revenue that is lower. Uh, so, total revenue is down from 6.8 billion, it's down 6% with revenues of 6.8 billion, but up 13% from the previous quarter. And actually, a nominal profit like $12 million is pretty nominal. But (laughs) the analysts have responded fairly positive and said this looks like to be a turnaround. Share price is still at ten bucks. It was trading at fifteen bucks before the pandemic, and it's holding at ten. So, not bad news for HP for which is probably for the first time for a long time that it hasn't been a pretty grim story of shrinking, 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 problems, 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 and now starting to turn the corner, which is great news, I think
0: yeah so the bulk of its revenue three point four billion came from compute, which was flat for this quarter uh, storage down ten percent and intelligent edge, which is I think the Aruba business unit was also down um, twelve percent revenue from uh, the one revenue uh, the one business unit that was up was um, High-performance computer mission-critical systems, that got a 3% bump year-over-year. Uh, I sort of wonder how HPE is going to look in the next couple of following quarters, given that back-to-school is ramping up and there's uh, a big push for laptops because of so much remote learning. Maybe that will help them going forward.
1: Yeah, well, that's HP, not HPE. Right, you're right. Sorry. So that yeah, consumer business HPE. is all yeah. over at HPE. Um at hp and they're the people making laptops and laser printers and you know inkjets and all that sort of stuff hp is purely the service right, servers and yeah. the data center and the enterprise parts of the business unit yeah oh, never mind then yeah. uh,
0: moving on vmware reported its q2 financial results for the fiscal year of 2021 brought in revenues of 2.88 billion which is up nine percent year over year and a net income of
1: 447 million Uh, You might not be very surprised that VMware made loads of money and clearly, all of you out there listening to this have been giving them piles and piles of money because that's what they're doing. And they made so much money that it actually got um, get Dell got an upgrade on its stock because Dell owns most <laughs> of the resort. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know that. And uh, Pat Gelsinger came the closest I've ever seen him come to a gloat. In light of these uncertain times, I'm pleased with VMware's solid execution and financial performance in Q2 driven by our strength in subscription and SaaS product offerings. So people are obviously switching over to the subscription licensing. Um, I don't hear people complaining too much about VMware's licensing program like I do about Cisco's uh-huh. particularly. Uh-huh. Um, I know that VMware's licensing is fairly egregious financially, but people don't complain about its complexity. And I, if you've got a feedback on that and whether it's actually problematic or not, I'd appreciate hearing with it, hearing from you. Uh, like we said at the top of the show, packetpushes.net slash fu, so you could send us some follow-up.
0: Yeah, the company was uh, touting its, the growth of subscription and SaaS revenue, uh, combined subscription and SaaS revenue was $631 million for the quarter, a 44% year-over-year growth, and it's now accounting for just over a fifth of the company's total revenues for that quarter. So that's – yeah, companies love SaaS and subscription revenue, so that's a nice win for them.
1: Yeah, it's really, really good if you're a financially – if you're a listed company too, because you know exactly how much revenue you're going to make. And you can actually fiddle the numbers. So if you tell the share market you're going to make this much number, you can also, there's sort of levers you can pull and pull, push and pull on that revenue. So, for example, Cisco used to have, used to have a finance arm. And uh, and it, I remember being told by some people once, oh, yes, the purpose of that is to meet financial results because the finance arm will let you juice the numbers. You could either push some financial stuff forward and accelerate it so you hit the target ah. or you'd pull it back and then you could hit the numbers for the for the analyst market. And, uh, you know, only within, you know, a few percent, you know, it it does, but it's significant enough to have an impact on the share price. People like, you know, if you say you're going to hit this target, they want you to hit that target because that's part of you know what the share market's looking for so having a business unit where you can sort of juice the numbers a little bit you can pull the lever and say need a little bit extra okay well we'll just draw it out there you know <laughs> so subscription licensing you can certainly do that as well to some extent you can sort of oh it's the end of the month but we're over target oh well, we'll just hold up the invoices for a few days or you know something like that right we'll right. send all the accounting people home you know? <laughs> <laughs> never on. never seen that you know not that i've ever seen that done or anything <laughs> All right, one more uh, result before we wrap. It's Nutanix. They
0: announced their Q4 and full year 2020 results. For the quarter, the company had revenues of $328 million, up 9% year-over-year, and a net loss of $185 million. Uh, for the full year, revenues of $1.3 billion and a net loss of $873 million.
1: Yeah, A couple of unique things about this was um, apparently Nutanix is shifting its guidance away from annual contract value billings to total contract value billings. Um, which reflects the subscription-based uh, shift. So they're moving to subscription licensing <laughs> like everybody else perhaps. And, uh, and this shift is making the market very happy because they look more cloudy. Everybody likes subscription revenue. I'm a ho- I think it's horrible. Um, I think it's bad for customers overall because they end up paying more for the same product that they bought at a fixed pricing. It just gives the vendors a chance to jack up prices, usually somewhere between 30 to 70% as well. What- Um, we've seen when you do an ROI, but customers like the cash flow nature of some of these models, or at least a significant enough of them are buying into these sorts of things. Um, But it's also interesting that the founder and CEO, Diraj Pandey, is leaving the company. This is a bit of a surprise, I think, to some people, but the market seems to think it's a good idea. Does that mean that they don't like him? I'm not sure. (laughs) They've had a pretty up and down sort of couple of years. They've struggled with, they've got a, a pile of debt, they're still not profit making um, they're all based on that they'll make revenue in the future and but on the same time, Bain Capital has just announced that they will add a seven hundred and fifty million dollar convertible notes investment, which is a pretty fancy uh, financial vehicle to get seven hundred and fifty million dollars more money into the company yeah so Nutanix is not on solid financial ground compared to say VMware or Cisco or HP it's still a highly leveraged Um, Business that's absolutely driven by a sales oriented culture. It's standing on losses, big losses, and it's a pretty nervous sort of a game.
0: My assumption is, and this is my entire assumption, uh, as a CEO and co-founder, um, you know, they did a great job. He did a great job of bringing Nutanix to market, splashing it out, got a lot of attention, mm. sort of helped create the whole HCI category. Uh, and now they're like, we need a steadier hand uh, for to get this onto f- stable financial ground because it hasn't made a profit yet. And yeah, I think that's right. 873000000 million year-over-year losses is not a sustainable track.
1: That's reasonable speculation. Um, the CEO of the company has uh, it has been a fairly um, outspoken person and been very aggressive in the market. Uh, he's been willing to take on people in public and also behind closed doors and be very uh, use very strong language to people that criticise his company. And I would think that if Bain Capital is dropping in seven, doing a seven hundred and fifty million dollars finance raise for them, it might be time for them to say we actually need a grown up in charge instead of a you know, an aggressive builder with an ego the size of a, you know, with an oversized right. ego. Right. Yeah. It might be time to get some some stability into the company and start focusing on making a profit. So that means if you're a Nutanix customer, you'll probably end up paying more and getting less because that's how you make profits. <laughs> what a wonderful outlook. <laughs> Dude, that's how it works. You that's capitalism.
0: Work for, you could work for Bain yep. Consulting, I think. That's a.
1: Uh... Yeah. Well, the, the secret to capitalism is to give the minimum amount for the maximum price. Sure. So who wins in that, you know? Yep. Yeah, well, there it is. <laughs> All right. Well,
0: that wraps up our news portion of the show. Please stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation on SD-WAN. We're talking to Silver Peak's customer, Quantum Clean. That's coming right up. Welcome to Tech Bytes, the world's fastest IT podcast. Today's topic is SD-WAN, and we're discussing a real-world Silver Peak Edge Connect deployment with our guest, James McCall. James is a network engineer at UCT and UCT is leader in sub 10 nanometer validated ultra-high purity services for the semiconductor wafer fabrication industry. James, welcome to the podcast. That's a mouthful. We've got a techie audience that's curious about semiconductor manufacturing. So can you spend just a few seconds on what UCT does?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um so there's kind of two components to UCT and how they operate. You know, they do a lot of different manufacturing for the semiconductor industry, um, you know, displays and components and things like that. And then there is the um, ultra cleaning side of UCT, hmm. which is uh, you know cleaning, repairing coatings, and also uh, testing for particles. You know, on the machines that make semiconductors. So, so
1: your company is about nanometer nanometer scale cleanliness. So yes, correct. just dust um, cleaning compound. So if I get a, a wafer arriving in my fab, I don't just have it, you know, wipe it down with a cloth clean. This has to be nano, like down at the nanometer scale clean. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's definitely um, very microscopic. There's, there's a lot of process involved and a lot of chemistry and a lot of, uh, you know, different, I guess we can call them recipes that we use mm-hmm. in order to – get something back to brand new shape so that we can ship it back to the manufacturer that can continue using the same part and components to manufacture wafer.
0: Yeah, that's the microscopic level. Let's pull it back to the macroscopic for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I guess you've got 21 of these uh, cleaning and recoding sites in eight countries, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. There's 21 sites that um, are cleaning, coding, and then also testing. Um, and that's just, again, that's just the uh, cleaning side of the company. There's, uh, I believe, an additional 13 sites that are the manufacturing side.
0: Okay. So that means WAN is essential here. So what kind of role is the WAN playing in the company's business?
2: Yeah, for us, uh, it it connects all our sites to a uh, kind of a centralized application that we use and, you know, a custom-made in-house application that uh, is kind of part of the process of cleaning for all the equipment. I mean, obviously, for the WAN, since it's a centralized location, the applications run out of our data center you know, all our sites have to make connection to that data center all the time because we're a 24-hour company. So
1: that's the traditional manufacturing problem, which is, in, you know, in 2020, most manufacturing companies run 24 hours a day. And the concept of downtime happens once every five years when you switch the plant off to replace it with something else sort of thing.
2: Right. Yep.
0: So what drove you to investigate SD-WAN then, if, you, if the WAN is so critical to the organization? S-
2: since 2000, we've been operating on uh, mpls connection, just a single mpls connection and in a lot of our overseas sites that was a um, you know an eight, eight meg connection mm. um, pretty pr- pretty slow and what kind of drove us to it is i, I want to say it was two thousand thirteen or fourteen, maybe a little bit later there was a significant undersea cable cut um, that that happened, and it cut off uh, an entire country um, mm. and we lost one of our sites for two days and any sort of downtime can cost us uh, thousands of dollars in, in revenue. So, mm. you know, we, we need to make sure that uh, that didn't happen. That's kind of what kind of kicked off. With, what So can it we was do really the
1: reliability to- aspect. You wanted to get away from the one MPLS and get into a redundancy, but I'm guessing that the country that you were in, how many had limited choices for dedicated WAN services?
2: Um, yes. I, I mean, it, all, all the countries seem to have, you know, at least two providers, so that that was a good thing. You know, being here in the U.S., we've got lots of uh, lots of options in different locations. Hmm. Uh, but Taiwan was the one that got hit.
0: Oh, Okay, right. And I would guess that if you've got a single MPLS link, then everything's backhauling to a central data center.
2: It was, yeah. So even for our uh, internet, so even for our internet, all our overseas countries were coming back to the U.S. for for their internet. Oh, it's wow. Just, Okay. You know, we were we were growing a lot. We were either acquiring companies or opening up new shops, uh, so we were just expanding at such a rate that our our WAN cannot take that kind of expansion anymore.
1: So that's one of the parts of SD WAN we don't normally talk about is that moving from uh, moving away from routers, which are hard to replace, relatively hard to replace, mm. to SD WAN appliances, it's a lot easier to just change things around, isn't it, compared to the old ways.
2: Oh, it was, for sure. Yeah, it was a lot easier <laughs> to, to, to do something like that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Like, you know, replacing a router was a big deal. You know, so yeah. there was no guarantee that router would be compatible with the E1 circuits and the routing and, you know, everything was codependent and integrated. But SD-WAN kind of just a whole lot simpler to make changes, like change the device. What about changing the devices from smaller to bigger as your factories grow? Is that easy to...
2: You know, if we're talking about an SD-WAN device, then yeah, for sure, it's it's a lot easier to scale that up a little bit. And yeah. most of the time, you'd have to really increase size of your company in order to require scaling up that particular
1: device yeah no the the way i was thinking about it is that you know you have the cloud software which is doing the controller but it's also doing the zero touch provisioning and there's two sides to zero touch provisioning that is you just go out on site plug the box in connects to the internet dials home and starts configuring itself according to the setup that you've done in Mm -hmm. advance right Mm -hmm. but the other side is if you actually need to replace it uh, whether it's failed or whether you want to scale it up with a bigger unit because you're moving from you know 100 meg to gig to 10 gig whatever it might be you can just again just go out there zero touch deployment still does that again you can replace them really simply
2: oh yeah for sure that that made it a lot easier i think we've 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 done it a few times where you know we actually thought there was something wrong with the device and so we just swapped it out and we're still experiencing the same issue so we i mean it was a matter of Two minutes to swap the device out and reconfigure it, um, you know, because In- again the zero <laughs> touch was helped out so much and you know, wound up not being you know the appliance, but you know at least it was easy to find that out.
1: Uh-huh. So if you went from eight meg dedicated circuits like a dedicated MPLS or, or uh, circuit, you know, circuit emulation type stuff or whatever mm-hmm. it was to internet, has what have you gone from eight to what hundreds?
2: Of no, million? so so our overseas sites are still on eight meg. Uh, MPLS connections, but then we've also added in uh, anywhere from 100 to 300 internet links. So mm-hmm. coax, either either coax or fiber. So now they have the secondary link, the internet link there as well.
0: So what kind of outcomes are you, like? What's the sort of before and after picture now that you've got the internet option, and how's that impacting performance and so on?
2: I mean, in so many different locations or in so many different ways that that's impacted our our, our production. Where you know, number one, we've got the redundancy. We've got uh, another provider. We have another. Uh, egress point into the building, you know, so so we're running down fiber through one provider, and we're running down coax through another mm. provider. Um, so just the redundancy right there. And then also, you know, Silver Peak allows us to offload local SaaS traffic. So if we want to send O365 traffic or Teams, mm. Skype, you know, anything that we want to just offload there locally and not backhaul to our data center, it's very simple configuration to just offload that locally to the internet.
0: Mm. And before that, mm. you would have to backhaul that traffic from, say, Taiwan or Asia to the U.S.
2: Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yes, <laughs> our Taiwan, Singapore, Israel—those were all coming back to the U.S. And and we started to um, you know play around with deploying a few more firewalls. So we kind of put some firewalls globally to uh, you know help offload that traffic. From our data mm. center, which you know mm. helps significantly, but then just beyond that, the, the Silver Peaks added even even better connectivity for our sites.
1: So do you think you'll keep those MPLS circuits going forward, or are you going to consider just using internet, or as I call it, public WAN?
2: I've, I've been thinking about that. So there is one site that we do have two public WANs, or two internet links at, and they have actually told us that, of, of our in-house application, it runs the best there, and we've even had you know, employees travel from the U.S. to that location and have said, I, I can't believe how, how great that application works there compared to any other site. Mm-hmm. And we've never had a ticket or a call regarding voice, video, anything coming from that site. So uh, truthfully, yes, I, I am considering getting rid of that MPLS <laughs> and, and lowering that cost. I mean, the, the, you know, the difference is crazy. It's, you know,
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's thousands or tens of thousands at a time, especially for right. those international circuits. Right. Take right. a tip, don't just get one more, get two more
2: or right. three. Yeah. I mean, no, for because sure. Because
1: if you are if you're going to save that much money, don't give it back to the accounting department who'll just do some, you know, They'll do something silly with it, like give it to salespeople or whatever. Make sure you spend it up
2: that's by four very times good, yeah. as much bandwidth Yeah, something. that's very good. Um,
1: you sort of hinted there, but the the quality of the end user experience must have gone through the roof. And I see you're using IP telephony. I can't imagine how bad IP telephony would have been on an 8 meg MPLS.
2: It wasn't too bad, and really not noticeable as as you would think. You know, mostly it was only for in-house calling, or if you know mm. the U.S. called Taiwan, we could have at least route it over the MPLS prior to yeah, it dumping out to a local pre-RI, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, it, it wasn't too bad, but it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely helped out with quality through any voice video application that we use.
0: And are you noticing that just through your own metrics or are you also seeing like a drop in the number of tickets coming in and, or user complaints, that kind of thing?
2: Oh, it's complaints. Yeah, a lot less complaints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot less calls in the middle of the night, a lot less complaints for, for any voice <laughs> issues.
1: Oh, so that's that's the uh, quality of life question. If I go home at five o'clock, do, you, do does anybody notice? Right. And uh, the success factor there is if no, nobody notices. That's right. It. So that's a SD WAN approves that 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 style of business. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yes. For sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we
0: know there's a lot of choices out there for SD WAN vendors. Uh, how many companies did you have on your shortlist when you were first making this decision?
2: I think we had. Three or four, uh, you know, that we spoke with, and then two that we actually uh, did a POC with.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, what made you decide on Silver Peak?
2: Okay, so initially, we did not decide on Silver Peak. We went with Cisco and their IWAN product. Um, you know, just basically my familiar- familiarity over the name, and then you know, also their name in the business. Right. Uh, so we mm-hmm. went with them, and. and I mean, I yeah. don't know how long you want this answer to be, but... Uh.
1: <laughs> I think I think what we can say is that Cisco's first pass at SD-WAN with, with the iWAN technology suite is fairly... Uh, legendary, shall we say, as yeah. to just how difficult it was, yeah. and how it it just really was never going, never worked for anybody who who went forward
2: with it, unfortunately. Yeah, no, for sure, it was a two and a half year uh, deployment that you know. Oh, wow. So you imagine lasting two and a half years for only twenty one sites. Uh, it's just a ridiculous amount of time was spent in troubleshooting that that product, and mm. and ultimately we just pulled the plug.
1: Yeah, and so you came back to Silver Peak, which you'd had during the POC, but. you you, that made sense because you'd evaluated it and then you'd return to them and then work the first time.
2: Right. Yep, for sure. It worked, it worked the first time and there really wasn't anything, you know, wrong with silver peak as to why we chose Cisco. It really, you know, boiled down to a name. And then we, you know, we did another POC with silver peak again after that two and a half years and just the improvements in two and a half years, uh, you know, just all their engineering and all their hours that they've spent into improving the product Just made a huge difference and then it was just an easy decision after that
0: so if it took you two and a half years to roll out 21 sites with cisco what was your experience like with silver peak
2: i think i did it in five weeks and that was me physically (laughs) traveling to every site and i didn't necessarily have to travel to every site it was just we were really gun shy about deploying Mm -hmm. a brand new product you know after two and a half years with cisco so we just decided that you know let's just send me to each site and wow and uh yeah, try to make that a long story short. We went we went from deployments taking, you know, my first deployment took 30 minutes to 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 get it installed and set up and configured mm-hmm. and that was with the Silver Peak engineer walking me through. By the time I got to the end, uh, I was doing it myself actually after the first, I think two or three deployments, I started doing it myself. I didn't need any help or have to place any calls with Silver Peak. We were down to our last site at like a 30-second outage while I switched over the cables. That's it that's really that's, I mean, that's
1: a really good story and compared to you know configuring getting iWAN configured and set up it would have taken you each 18, sort of hours. Have taken,
2: 18 hours 18 yeah. hours was my first deployment that was, it took 18 hours for my first deployment with cisco
1: and that's even with all the proc and the test up and the setting yep. and setting up and working it all out and knowing yep. what you were going to do it's still yeah and yep. this is the, the absolute gap between and of course cisco's realized this and that's why they move from iWAN to something else right but yeah. you know that is the WAN difference I, I think that really highlights and this is something i've said a lot is that the gap between SD-WAN and what we did before is just so vast you, the idea of routers and doing everything in a some you know artisanal command line and to using an sd controller to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you of the simple work of the you know the the cli just changes
2: everything yep yep for sure
1: uh, and speaking of
0: routers are you still running routers at each side alongside the SD-WAN appliance
2: No, no, we, I mean, there's one location, but that's just because the, uh, the termination is an E1 and and we just, uh, Mm -hmm. we don't have an E1, you know, we don't have that into the Silver Peak yet. Um, Okay. So yeah, we have to have a router terminate that line and then, but we're moving over. Uh, currently we've got a new link ordered where we'll be able to get that one router out and then that's the last one.
0: Okay. So that's 21 devices now out of your hands, things you don't have to worry about, manage, upgrade, et cetera.
2: Yep. Uh, and what about
0: things like WAN optimization? I know Silver Peak has like a, a sort of add-on package where you can also do WAN op uh, on top of the SD-WAN.
2: Yeah, definitely. So we run that too. And, it, you know, it helps greatly with our in-house application. We're getting up to you ninety know, 96% of the traffic not having to go over the WAN, uh, you know, to transmit to the end user just because the optimization. The Silver Peak stores that information locally and serves it up to the end user. And, you know, so that's that's additional bandwidth. That's just not, not getting tied up with, uh, you know, the same picture being displayed on a website over and over and over again, you know, when there's a hundred employees using a web browser to access the application, that's all that information never has to go over the WAN and chew up her bandwidth again.
0: Well, that's about all the time we have, but James, thank you for joining us. Uh, That was a really good conversation, and thanks to Silver Peak for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free, technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter, at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that, too much networking would never be enough.